Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of our podcast. Today we talk about love. Um, as you can see, my title is "Arrows and Its Discontent: Desire, Arrows, and Its Forms in the Symposium and Jinping Wei." So, what is love? What I think at one point or another in our lives, we have all asked ourselves these questions. We were hoping that one day, when we grow up, we'll find that one true love, and that one person we're destined to be with. Reality, though, often disappoints. So we go to those classics, those classics about love, those Jane Austen novels, those.、Um, Famous books where the characters have happy endings, and we try to find answers in those classic tales. And in my life, I have found two texts that somehow taught me how to love, or you can say what love is in its many forms. And one is from ancient Greece, and Another is from ancient China. Now, if you don't already know, the Greeks have a name, a word, for all forms of love. They call it eros. In fact, eros was the Greek god of love, or more precisely, passionate and physical desire. The Greeks did not know how to define eros, so they did what they could, and they always do. Is that they hosted a banquet inviting all the notable men in Athens, and each of those men invited was asked to give a speech on what love is, and they call it a symposium, and that's where Plato's famous book Symposium comes from, and at this symposium there was the very well-known philosopher Socrates. And there was the general and political figure in Athens at the time, Alcibiades, and the comic playwright Aristophanes, among other people. And the speeches were given in praise of Eros, even though it was in the context of ancient Greek society. The text continued to shine light on our understanding of love all the way till today.、Um, I actually took a seminar on the symposium. In college,、um, it's my last year of college, and it was a really phenomenal class.、Um, I got to do with、uh, one professor who is an、uh, expert on Socrates.、Um, and another text that changed my view on what love is is、uh, what people often thought is a pornographic novel. But not really. It is a very well-known fiction from the 16th-century China called Jinpingmei, and its English name is *The Plum in the Golden Vase*, which is not only famous for being a moralistic tale on human nature, but also for its explicit depiction of sexuality, of all kinds of sexuality.、Um, you know, the affairs.、Uh, um, Homosexuality,、uh, all kinds of sexual acts, really,、um, in the book, and Princeton University Press, in describing 
one of the famous translations of this book called the novel a landmark in the development of its um, the narrative art form not only from a specifically Chinese perspective but in a world historical context noted for its surprisingly modern technique and with the possible exception of Tale of Genji and Don Quixote there is no earlier work of prose fiction of equal sophistication in world literature so Jinping Mei is really a phenomenal work and is historically being considered as one of the six classics of Chinese literature um, even though it unlike the other five books is definitely a banned book for a long time um, because of its de depiction of sex and love but sex really um, now what is fascinating in the dialectic in the symposium is the debate over the definition philosophy engaged in because of the way the symposium attempts to negotiate with arrows and notions of pursuit pursuit and fulfillment i wish to draw a comparison with the themes and narratives of Jinping Mei and Jinping Mei's protagonist and the cast of characters. And these two works, even though they're so far apart, their authors never met. Um, and the, the readership is very drastically different too. I doubt that there are, you know, more than hundreds of people who have read both work. Um, but, um, like the symposium, there is a set of circumstantial similarities. Both texts have authors whose status as real or fictional is somewhat contested. Both represent dialectical stories to depict moral and ethical situations and critique contemporary society. The protagonist of Jinping Mei and the disclosure that Alcibiades initiates surface a similar topic, namely of desire the pursuit of desire, which often involve the search for love, for beauty, for arrows, for a particular set of fulfillment and meaning that each expounds upon through their own versions of thought, dialogue, and action. So there are two terms that help us approach a shared critique crust in both uh, the symposium and Jinping Mei. Their desire and arrows. Desire, the overwhelming sense of wishing and wanting, of seeking fulfillment. And arrows, on the other hand, is where the philosophy and praxis of desire is created, defined, contested. And arrows and its discontents are the source of much of the discussion, controversy, and rancor in both the symposium and Jinping Mei. So the ethical and moral, the, the teleological and epistemological, all are at stake in the way both texts represent how people craft or are possessed, lose or preserve, define or change their sense of the world and themselves as, as they seek to discover and realize their desires. Their world really changed after they realize 
part of themselves and that part's relationship with desire, really. The sense of self, of being that they then proceed to enact as they live their lives, encounter and impact other people, is something both the symposium and Jinping may grapple with at every level in their own way. While both differ fundamentally in terms of structure and origin, uh, among other differences, I want to say that in some way, to me, both texts are nonetheless fundamentally engaged with an examination of being through desire that is best framed through a discussion of eros and the forms it takes and is received in both works. So desire in both texts are ultimately means by which the reader can discern how both works negotiate with what it means to seek the good life, to be good, to discern virtue from vice, as its characters struggle with the pursuit of their desire through narrative dramatized through dialectic or action. Jinping Mei can be read as a novel whose fundamental stance is one of contention. For one, it seems to test through dramatization aspects of the Buddhist philosophy and thought, particularly with its negotiation with the concept of kong, which translates into empty, um, emptiness and of the return to nothingness. As one makes it through the cast and narratives of the novel, I argue that it is a novel that puts all its contentions it does not seek to overthrow or disprove, but rather to disturb and doubt any way of life that is led blindly, unconsciously, and driven by desire, by showing that the ramifications of such ways of life, through um, though one of the principal themes of the novel is satisfa uh, satisfaction in all its forms, particularly those temporal and carnal, the sexual, the, the one of its themes is the seek of um, love, in a sense, the fulfillment of the, their desire. So too is one of its other theme is the sense of lack, of dissatisfaction that permeates uh, permeates and seems to be suffused into the every very everyday lives of period that Jinping Mei represents and critiques so dramatically. The time that um, the author wrote, um, which is actually um, a change of dynasty. Um, so it's a very chaotic time. Um, in the symposium, on the other hand, Alcibiades his speech attempted seduction of Socrates. Um, there's a scene, really, while he was speaking. Um, he was trying to climb up to Socrates' bed and trying to seduce him, really, um, to have his love or his praise of himself. And the aftermath is critical in understanding Eros as one of the most important topics in life. Alcibiades, he's the politically ambitious man 
who owe almost everything to thoughts about nobility, the honor of glory, duty, and the like. But he came to some point to see honor won from imprudent many as worthless, and therefore he wants to be recognized by Socrates, who is, he feels, um, the only man who is superior than he is, uh, he was. Um, and Socrates did not fulfill Alcibiades' wishes, but instead offers him education to replace the good he had been seeking in political life, and even dissuade him from pursuing further political endeavors in the future. And that whole thing um, combined with Socrates' um, you know, famous works of um, his last speech and... and um, uh, it can be, you know, another topic on its own, um, the love for philosophy, um, but that's another day. Um, but Alcibiades' failure to heed Socrates' advice, his wisdom, reveals many fundamental contentions facing an individual and Greek society at the same time. Uh, which the symposium depicts through its discussion and dramatization of the nature of eros and its place in human life. And the relationship between the two different ways of life, the political and the philosophical. Alcibiades may be living in a very different time and space from Jinping Mei. Um, yet, the anxiety and constant feeling of lack of fulfillment even as he continues the desire more that originates from the pursuit of arrows, is similar to um, the protagonist in Jinping Mei. His name is Ximen Qing. He's a very um, sexually, um, sexually active man. Let's just put it that way. Um, Ximen Qing's anxiety from the obsessive desire um, for the four vices, namely jiu, se, tai, qi, um, which the author of Jinping Mei puts out, uh, which means food, wine, sex, money, and power. So just as Alcibiades pursues political peerage because he believes power will help fulfill his desires and just is how Alcibiades craves to possess, to be surrounded with, and to have sex with those he finds beautiful in some way. So too do the characters in Jinping Mei. And Professor Andrew Plax, in his book, Jinping Mei, Inversion of Self-Cultivation, offers a diag um, diagnosis for the struggle that the novel is representing. He writes, the focus of this narrative is more attuned to the life of the body, its drive for food, sex, money, and power, than to the life of the mind. At many points, it almost seems as if the central figures Ximen Qing, Pan Jinlian, and Li Ping are, are, in a sense, devoid of mind, that is, empty inside except for momentary appetites, or at best, emotional affinities, but without self-consciousness. And this unconscious perception that Jinping Mei's narrator deliberately accentuates highlights how his temporal pursuit 
do not make up for or substitute for the return to nothingness, to void, to lack. And this lustful conquest and the administrative ladder that Ximen Qing, the protagonist of Jinping Ping Mei, climbs, um, he, he tries to climb the really the official ladder to try to become a famous official, but he, he failed. Um, no matter how um, rapaciously and improbably show a similar addiction to desire that is dominated by a constant return to a sense of narrative incompleteness, of dissatisfaction, of emptiness. And though characters like Ximen Qing do not display the same degree of self-awareness, it is not dissimilar to the itching sense of lack that really Alcibiades, no matter how much he satisfies himself and discovers more to want, um, it is the lack of awareness, of mindfulness, and the lack of pursuit of wisdom that lock these characters up with their desire and eventually lead to their destruction. While the symposium dramatizes this conflict through a dialectic where Socrates hopes to surface the mindless, unconscious pursuit of desire that Alcibiades has devoted his life to in an attempt for him to learn, Jin Ping Mei, on the other hand, depicts the characters failing into desire and ultimately the consequences of depra depravity. Um, and really, both texts aim to dissuade through a kind of awakening for an audience member, a reader. For the symposium, the reader approaches with kind of this um, knowledge that it is text represented by Plato, and for Socrates, it is a dialogue before an audience. The pursuit of wisdom, a life well lived for good, is the goal that it is assumed few will really succeed in and most will fail. Uh, most wouldn't be able to um, really grasp um, the love of philosophy. Um, this innate fatalism of the symposium is that it is difficult for many of the people Socrates attempts to admolish or to teach, to engage with, to learn, and, uh, and deviate from, to deviate from the harmful habits or sense of lackness um, that has consumed them. And so too, Jin Ping Mei offers very little respite for its flawed central characters. Um, just as it was for the audience and readers of the symposium, for Jin Ping Mei, the reader must resist and recognize uh, the ironic fatalism that its characters are set on as it dramatizes their descent. Um, almost from the very first chapter, this fatalism is shown and developed and um, Despite how um, beautiful the in Jinping Mei, the first uh, few chapters shows that the banquets, the the luxurious life that our central characters lead, 
eventually it's all going to nothingness. Um, in the symposium, Alcibiades enters the party. He enters the party a lot like Dionysus, um, which is the god of wine and fertility in ancient Greek religion and myth. And it's a hedonistic god. Dionysus was famous for its unrestrained consumption. And he was accompanied by attendants and a flute girl. And he arrives at the party surrounded by hedonistic distractions as the flute girl draws out the sound of the Socrates logos and he seems to carry unresolved confusions when he came in, but he refused to deal with the perplexity of the question that he faces. Um, and Socrates attempted to teach Alcibiades about Eros, not just because critical examination of the beautiful is a necessary step in becoming a Socratic philosopher. Socrates doesn't really care if Alcibiades can truly become a philosopher like he is, right? He, you know, most likely wouldn't. Um, Socrates takes on the risk to educate Alcibiades for many reasons. Um, on the surface, Alcibiades seems to be an embodiment of Eros in the common sense. He's gorgeous. He's a kind of peak in ambition and longing. Most certainly, he has very strong desire in finite objects, including love with renown. And like the philosopher, he longed for the whole, but his whole encompasses the real whole of this mortal world, which can never be fully fulfilled. You can't have everything. You know, you can't. Alcibiades realized um, he is deeply desirous of the thing that brings the eternal promise of happiness. And Alcibiades seems willing to spend his life pursuing his longing for arrows, even without a real knowledge of what it is. And Socrates is fully aware of Alcibiades' intense longing. According to Plato, Socrates is a daimonic man who is an expert on arrows. He possesses real knowledge of human um, yearning of the gods and therefore is most capable of teaching Alcibiades. It turns out arrows is not like food or sex or most other goods. Most goods merely satisfy a particular desire. They're partial goods. Arrows, however, seems to promise happiness as a whole. It makes us complete in a way that moments of fulfillment cannot. And it is not until we fall in love that we first get a glimpse of the happiness that we all crave with an intensity that is something too painful to acknowledge. And for that reason, Eros may have more to teach us about the soul and its longings than any other experience. And for an intensely erotic man like Alcibiades, once the possibility of true happiness has been glimpsed, he will never want to spend time seeking one partial good after another. Everyone longs for happiness, but Alcibiades has the soul and that character, and that build, that longs for arrows most intensely and persistently than any other person in um, Athens at the time. Um, Socrates seen, uh, sees that if 
he could change his object of desire and direct the intense longing towards um, the complete happiness that uh, love promises to philosophy, he will be able to help Asabiades. Asabiades, though he is physically beautiful and well known for his political ability, wants to know and possess Socrates' power. And by what? By seducing Socrates, because Alcibiades believes that everything he is doing is at stake. And this is very, very similar, oddly, um, to our protagonist in Jinping Mei, whose name is Simon Qing. And Simon Qing is presented in the first encounter as the most good looking young man. Who is in his twenties and possess quite a fortune from inheritance? It says, "Feng Liu Zi Di, Xing Qing Xiao Sa, Rao Yu Ji Guan Jia Zi, Nian Ji Er Shi Liu Qi." And in that way, both of them, Alcibiades and Simon Qing, are depicted as somehow possessing a charismatic ability to find a way to influence and sway. Most of the characters around them, and both characters are primarily known for their desire to obtain worldly achievement, and above all, fulfillment of sexual desire. And most interestingly, they both believe that eros is the highest form to pursue. And in Alcibiades' speech, we learn that eros promises the full happiness. And in Jinping Mei, we see that one's sexual desire and capacity is directly related to one's qi, which can be translated as life breath or one's spirit, which is the very essence of life.、Um, and we come to see that Simon Qing's sexual desire in Jinping Mei as dominating the narrative,、um, as Professor Plax suggests, that in Jinping Mei the formula. Um, which, referring to the four vices, recurs in a major framework of meaning, helps to account for the wide range of excessive behavior we witness in all four of these areas, all of which are pointedly linked to excessive sexuality, or the pursuit of,、um, or the show of his、um, limit, seemingly limitless life breath is qi. And and indeed, many of the pr- prominent locations and events in the novel suggest that Simon Qing's life is intricately intertwined with his excessive sexual desire, and almost always, his sexual desire seems greater than all of the other types of desire. It is most clear from Simon Qing's death in Chapter Seventy Nine that there is not just pleasure but also Great suffering from the sex itself. Before the time that Simon Qing's death, for instance, in the poems、um, on his last time with Madame Lin, his last sex really, in Chapter Seventy Eight, it says she seized his vital essence and sucked his marrow. And early in Chapter Seventy Nine, which is the last, the chapter that depicts his death.、Um, When Wang Jing, uh, when Wang Jingpa was massaging his legs, Simon Qing felt、um, enervated, which is a lack of qi, and uncomfortable. His sexual desire is contagious.
and both tempts、uh, and distracts the character in various perches、uh, perches of society to fall into his desire with him. And stylistically, his seduction and desires are almost always reflected in the people around him.、Um, and this is Simon Ting's really Simon Ting's power and his charis、uh, charismatic. Um, presence and his powerful presence.、Um, in chapter fifty four and fifty five, and in chapter sixty one, Pan Jinlian is described. So Pan Jinlian is、um, the fee the one of the female protagonists in the novel who、um, is gorgeous and who Simon Ting、um, has seduced from、um, Pan Jinlian's previous husband.、Um, And Pantinet is described to have,、um, to have to, an infusion of semen in her blood. The rise and fall of Simon Ting's world can be interpreted as reflecting the troubles deep ingrained in human life, rather than simply presenting a dangerous view on sex or the dangerous influence of the Wanli society at the time. This bodily indulgence is just a reflection of an empty yet corrosive mind. That only wants the perfect and forever happiness. And the author's explanation of Simenti's death、um, is in chapter seventy nine. It writes that, 看官听说一己精神有限，天下色欲无穷。西门庆只知贪淫，呃，月色，更不知油灯，呃，油枯灯灭。Um, 虽衰人亡，正是起头所说。二八佳人体似酥，腰间斩剑。呃，腰间仗剑斩渔夫，虽然不见人头落，暗里教军骨碎酥。So on the surface, the author is suggesting that、um, this didactic message of karma,、uh, karmic retribution. Um, because he had a lot of sex and he, you know, killed a lot of men because he wanted to sleep with women or because he wanted to、um, get higher on the official ladder and he wants to、um, get success in his life.、Um, yet on a deeper level, it comes to fulfill the prophecy set in the very beginning of the story, as it draws、um, that Simon Ting story.、Um, Was going to come to a narrative close on the same thing. The juxtaposition of limited and endless seemed to point out the very quintessential aspect of life, which is we all experience life with a sense of lack that sometimes be felt as、uh, permeating and suffused into everyday life. But the theme of lack can lead to dissatisfaction and desire. Which ultimately takes on a wider scope of meaning in terms of the rise and fall of Simon Ting's world, as Simon Ting's involvement with women unfolds from chapter fifty to seventy-nine. It parallels a period of of fullness in other、um, phases of his life as well.、Um, in, in chapter fifty-seven, he tells a foreign monk that all his wishes have been fulfilled. He tells this monk, who who is just a traveling monk,、um, but yet as we see in the next ten chapters, 
after this peak of his life in um, from chapter 50 to 79, um, his life can come to the highlight, uh, the highest point, but he still keeps chasing after his desire for more. It seems like there is never enough for him. Um, and this self-defining act starting from getting the magic potion from the monk. So he got, he bought a potion which um, the monk sells for, you know, you, you'll be, you know, it's a, it's a Viagra basically. Um, it represents that Simenti almost is like a fighter to be in control of his own destiny. But in Jinping Mei, on multiple occasions, there is almost a discussion on the soul in a repeated line of proverbial wisdom. It says, it is not sensual desire that leads men astray, but men themselves who fall into error. And this is not the, um, not particularly uh, to Ximen Qing appears truly directed at um, but rather the reader who are pushed to examine the relationship between themselves and their conscious doing. Really, when the readers are reading about Simon Ting and his downfall, it's you, you are forced to look into yourself and see if there is similar unfulfillment or similar desire, um, the similar error that you made. And this complex nature of the individual self, which requires the self-cultivation to be conscious of one's limitedness and relationship with one's desire, is truly um, accentuated in both the texts. And there is also a similar sense of encountering a physical embodiment of one's desire, in the symposium, where Alcibiades believes Socrates resembles the peak of his erotic longing, even though Alcibiades admits that he is an unrequited lover, he still complains about Socrates not loving him back, and he does this by backhandedly lavishing praise on Socrates' qualities. He argues that despite Socrates' powers, despite his search for wisdom, and despite his attempts to educate others, Alcibiades believes Socrates has failed to increase justice in society. In a very similar way, the city will later accuse Socrates against, um, accuse Socrates of injustice to, to Athens at the time, which comes down uh, to saying he did not love the god that the city recognized. Um, and in Socrates' famous speech, Alcibiades, uh, oh, sorry, in, in uh, Alcibiades' famous speech, he describes the powerful effect of Socrates on his own desire. Hear me tell how he is like those to whom I have likened him and how amazing is the power he has. You see that Socrates is erotically inclined to the beauties and is always around them, and that he is thunderstruck, and again, that he is ignorant of everything and knows nothing. Know that he is not at all concerned if someone is beautiful, 
and he holds this in such great content that no one would believe it any more than if someone is rich or has any other honor of those deemed blessed by the multitude. But he believes that all these possessions are worth nothing and that we are nothing. And all his life, he keeps on being ironic, um, ironical and playful to human beings. And here you see Alcibiades frankly admits that Socrates has this amazing power. However, he does not elaborate on it. It is this power that inspires admiration and hatred. And I think that it is the power of only of a philosopher. The erotic man possesses is the power to discern the governing passion, desire of everyone he meets. And um, the famous scholar for Socrates, Leo Strauss, um, in University of Chicago, puts it that Platonic philosophy, by virtue of a deeper understanding of the principles, is able to see in man the manifestation of the principles. And indeed, people are often first attracted by Socrates, feeling that he truly understood them and think only he can help them in their perplexity. And in fact, it is not simply his capacity to make beautiful and profound speeches that makes Socrates attractive. It is that they are tailored to evoke and elaborate the deepest longing of the persons to whom they are addressed. The inducement toward confrontation with one's own desire does not necessarily result in those Socrates speaks to, to reform or change themselves, or rather, like the Alcibiades, um, in Alcibiades' case, they can succumb once more to the death of their arrows and the habits of their desire. And in Jinping Mei, there is no figure that is really precisely Socratic or like Socrates in narrative, but the author himself has shaped his narrative and this narrative of the novel so that the reader is put into a similar position that one might find themselves when engaged with a confrontational dialectic, which, while not exactly so- Socratic dialogue, um, is how the drama of the symposium unfolds. The reader of Jinping Mei comes to realize that the further progress is made in the text that is not a passive process, but one that demands activity and forces the reader to acknowledge that the four vices of excess, the extra desire, and that the pursuit of a good life is supremely difficult and the call of desire does not easily nor often translate into searching for self-consciousness an embrace of a return to nothingness of a seeking of wisdom that is necessarily incomplete desire in the form of the carnal of temporal the possessive calls strongly and can be depicted in an almost merciless sequence and made into one's own personal private habit and effect and influence even one's public duties, such as in a novel. 
And whereas the characters in Jinping Wei are almost willing, are willfully lacking in self-awareness, the novel itself is almost exceedingly self-aware, full of an awareness of a reader's desire for satisfaction, and there of a society discontent that can be indicative of perhaps fatal decay, and of the challenge of obeying virtuous teachings. However. They may be repeated or drummed like a catechism into one's textual and everyday life, and the effect of um, so、uh, Socrates' refusal to Alcibiades made Alcibiades deeply unsatisfied with himself, and Socrates has awakened a longing in Alcibiades, but Alcibiades wasn't sure how to satisfy it. He wanted to get the advantage, or knowing Socrates, such as somehow possessing the knowledge of his Socrates' personal business and other alleged secrets of、um, things that Socrates has. And Alcibiades' desire to possess Socrates in such ways is so as to unravel his own confusion, but. Just as he used to do, he would converse with me, and having spent the day with me, he would take his leave. In this way, Socrates refuses to offer Alcibiades his teaching. And quite the opposite, it is exactly through the dialectic form that、um, Diotima,、um, the the god that actually teaches Socrates the essence of arrows. Um, that Socrates tries to teach Alcibiades、um, that Eros or the philosopher seeks knowledge of what is truly beautiful and just. He won't settle for the superficial sort of knowledge that others settle for. Ignorance of the kind is a great advance over thinking that you know when you don't. And.、Um, As the story、uh, of Jinping Mei is closely intertwined with Water Margin,、um, another famous plot、um, fiction in Chinese history, and Jinping Mei's plot is also driven by、um, this sexual desire and this desire that is deliberately suppressed or covered,、um, and yet the symbolism. Um, in Jinping Mei,、um, are really alive all the way till today, and the plot is pushed by Ximen Qing, the protagonist's pursuit of desire. As the first half of the book, he facilitates the continuance in introducing new characters. In the second half, you see the decline. You see that the characters are. Uh, dying one by one, and readers kind of do not get to catch a breath when Simon Tsing's sexual desire expedited after he obtains the magic potency, and as when Simon Tsing's world is pushed by a force that none of the characters seem to be able to control, just as in the symposium, the novel is about more than desire and arrows. And serves and serves as a cautionary text to prompt thinking on how to be good.
the both um both the texts the symposium Jinping Wei are about how one can stray from virtue and falls into the evil. In both texts and um the the body of the text serves as the site of vice representing characters who are really trapped in a cycle of engagement with themselves and the world that betrays a lack of awareness of the harm they risk doing to themselves and others. And these patterns work together to amount to a critique not just of these individual characters, but of society itself, which can be better. And through both texts, um, it's less of we know we know how what arrows is, but how society as intact despite these ills, um, the corrosiveness of empty mindedness, um, suggests at lingering damage if acknowledged by oneself. Just as reading both texts for purely pleasure alone should cause some discomfort, so too should a life pleasured solely by saturation of desire be called into uh, into question. And Jinping Mei and the symposium are calls to self-examination and offer this chance not directly but by showing the ways in which the unexamined life can be so easily succumbs to, so simply lapsed to, um, so simply lapsed into. The two texts show us what love is and what love is to an individual and its relationship um, really to everyone of us and the society we live in. And thank you so much for your listening.